Well, good morning. It is a beautiful blue sky morning. I'm looking outside. The windows are right there in front of me. There is no clouds that I can see. I didn't remember seeing any clouds this morning. Actually driving here this morning, the sun was just rising and it was right in my face as I was driving east, which made it really hard to see. So I welcome you. Um, it's a bit windy out there, though. I see the the the, the the trees and signs and stuff moving around out there. So welcome this morning, November 15th. We survived Friday the 13th, right? Because, well, that's just superstition anyways. And so we're here to study uh, a Sunday school lesson, study a Bible study this morning. And um, I'm, who am I? I'm Pastor Nelson, Associate Pastor at Tower View Baptist Church in Kansas City, Missouri, right by the World's of Fun Water Tower, um, Northeast 50th Street and Randolph Road are the crossroads by us. We're also right by the interstate exit at Interstate 435 for the 48th Street exit ramp. That's the neck of the woods that we live in. If, you wanna, if you're not close to Kansas City and you want to find out more about us, you can check us out at towerviewkc.com. You can check out our Facebook page, Tower View Baptist Church, the one in Kansas City, Missouri. And if you want to get in contact with us, you can call or, or text the church line, 816-368-1330. So I appreciate everybody coming on and watching this morning, watching, listening, however, whichever uh, senses you are using this morning. And I thank you for being here. So we're going to go ahead and get started and go into our Bible study and let's start with a word of prayer. Lord God, you are the mighty God. Help us as we study your word. Because your word never fails us. Your word is always there. No matter what the weather is outside. No matter what the politics of the country we live in is, is happening. No matter our personal health, our physical health, our emotional health, our mental health, our spiritual health, Lord, your word is always there and steadfast. And so help us as we study your word this morning. That you will touch our hearts, will touch our minds, and that it will change us, Lord. You are the mighty God, Lord, and we just pray all these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. So thank you for watching this morning. I see a, a few comments there. I see Darren. I see Shirley. And if Shirley's there, I bet Don is there. Um, I see Judy there. And so I appreciate you all that are there and the others who are there watching who don't type comments, that's fine. You don't have to type comments. We're not keeping score. We're not taking attendance. Um, but I thank you for watching and listening. Today's lesson, we continue with our study in the book of Isaiah. We're, we're getting to the end of this study. We're going to finish up by the end of this month. So we got counting this morning. We have three lessons left. And today's lesson is... Um, about God's servant, God's suffering servant. And this is a lesson 11 in your books, if you have a book with you. 
And it's from Isaiah 53, is what the book is. Isaiah 53, 1 through 12, which is the whole chapter. But as I said before, the chapter numbers, the verse numbers are not divinely inspired. They were added by men uh, hundreds of years, in some cases thousands of years after the scripture was originally written. They were put in roughly about a thousand years ago, give or take a hundred years. And, and, and so they're not scripture. So why am I telling you that? Because we're going to start this section not at 53.1, because that's not the beginning of this um, section of Scripture. We're going to back up three verses. We're going to start in 52.13. So in this section of Scripture that we've been going through, uh, chapters, uh, which started in, in, in chapter 49, 49 to 55, we see places... It alternates between a poem, a, a writing about God's servant and salvation in uh, and about salvation for Zion and by extension salvation for us. And so uh, we see there was a servant poem in chapter 49, 1 through 13. There was a servant poem in chapter 50, verses 4 through 11. And then we find this servant poem that starts in 52, 13. So in chapter 52, verses 13, 14, and 15. And then it continues in chapter 53 all the way to the end of the chapter, um, verse 12. And so that's the scripture we're going to look at this morning. And as you look at it, it's, it's convenient that it's broken out in, in sections about three verses apiece. So the first section is, is 52, 13 to 15. And then, and then in chapter 53, verses 1 through 3, 4 through 6, 7 through 9, and 10 through 12. Depending on, on the edition and the publisher of, of your scripture, um, you, you may have some breaks there. So in the, in, in the Bible that I'm using here, it's, it happens to be a Christian Standard Bible, um, there is a, there's like an extra a white space, an extra blank line after each of those sections. And the same, I have a New American Standard sitting here, and they do the same thing. Sometimes they'll just, um, the New American Standard also, at the beginning of those uh, sections, they, the first verse in each section of those sections is bold, just to tell you that's the beginning of a paragraph, a beginning of a thought. And so, you know, and in, in my scripture here, at the beginning of verse 13, 52, 13, it says, A servant's suffering and exaltation. That is put in by the publisher. It's not part necessarily part of the CSB. It might be. But it's put in there by them. It's not that heading is not scripture. So when you see those subheadings within the text of your translations, understand that those subheadings are not scripture. In the same way, the verse numbers and the chapter numbers really are not scripture. We use them, and the reason they were put there is for our convenience. So I can say, turn to Isaiah 53, and you can find that pretty easily. You, you know, it's like, well, you may have to use the table of contents to find where Isaiah is in your scripture, but once you find the book of Isaiah, it's pretty easy to find number 53. It's right between 52 and 54. 
And so we use that as a convenience. But just understand that, that those numbers themselves are not Scripture. Isaiah did not put chapter numbers in here as he was writing this. The ancient Jews who read this when the kingdom of Israel, uh, during, during, during the time of the kings, and the time of their exile in Babylon, they did not have chapter numbers. When Jesus read this, the scripture, when he read from the book of Isaiah in the synagogues, when we read that in the Gospels, he didn't say, I'm, okay, I'm reading from Isaiah 53. He, he never said that. He just said, I'm reading from the book of Isaiah. And, but the people, and the scribes especially, they knew scripture so well, and a lot of them had it memorized, that if you just give them a, a line or two, they, could, they knew where it was, and they could find it. We need a little help. So we have the ver chapter numbers and the verse numbers. Like I said, it's a convenience, but it's not inspired scripture. So we're going to you know, um, use them and see where the logical sections are, which don't necessarily follow the chapter numbers. Why did they put the chapter number there and not back a couple of verses? I don't know. Um, have to ask that guy, but he's not around. All right. So let's jump in here. So Isaiah 52, verse 13. I'm going to read verses 13 to 15. See, my servant will be successful. He will be raised, lifted up, and, great, and greatly exalted. Just as many were appalled at you, his appearance was so disfigured that he did not look like a man. His form did not resemble a human being. So he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of him. For they will see what had not been told them, and they will understand what they had not heard. Excuse me. So we see this. Well, first thing, when we start reading this, when we get them to a section, who is speaking? Yes, this is in the book of Isaiah. But when it talks about, see my servant, well, I'm pretty sure Isaiah is not talking about his personal servant. So it must be God speaking. He's saying, see my servant. He will be successful. Um, he, he will... Um, He'll be highly exalted, it says here. He'd, he'd be raised up. He'd be lifted up. Things are going to go good for him. It's like, well, that's what we want for the Messiah, right? We want him to be exalted. We want to cheer for him. But in verse 14, it, just, it goes right back to the opposite. It says, it says, just as many will be appalled by you. And it's talking about the servant. He's going, they're going to be appalled by the servant. Why? Because he's ugly. It isn't like the pictures that we see that we hang up in our houses. And the most famous one is by Solomon Head. That, that nice picture where you know, Jesus is looking off to the side and there's like a little glow of a light and his hair is perfect and he has perfect skin and he has blue eyes and his hair is kind of blondish. That doesn't go with this verse. It says he was disfigured. He did not look like a man. Now, is it talking about his crucifixion? Quite possibly. Where he was beaten to a pulp? That's why when Mel Gibson made The Passion of the Christ, the movie, he made it so gruesome. Because it was. 
And so it's talking about the servant. He's going to be exalted, but he's not going to look good doing it. Unlike all our TV preachers who all look good. Why, why are no TV preachers ugly? Are there no ugly people that know how to preach? Yeah, but they don't get the TV contracts, right? They don't get called to the big churches. And how will this happen? It's in verse 15, it says, He will sprinkle many nations. And it's sprinkling, we get the idea of at a sacrifice, they sprinkled the altar with the blood of the animal that was sacrificed. And the kings of all these nations eventually will understand who Jesus is. And they will understand the Messiah, and they understand who God is. And they won't have to have it explained to them anymore. They'll, 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 they'll understand. Did Pontius Pilate finally figure it out? We don't know. And so we continue on for the next section in chapter 53, starting in verse 1. So I'm going to read verse, chapter 53, verses 1 through 3. So we keep speaking. But now notice the pronouns change. Okay? I mean, yeah, I'm going to get all, all, remember all your grammar stuff from high school, right? So at the beginning, verse 13, it said, See my servant. So it's first person plural. And then it says, He will be raised. And that's the servant. So the, the he. But now in verse 53, it changes. Who has believed what we have heard? We. Who's the we? So once again, we have to figure out who is speaking. Well, God was just speaking. So is this God still speaking? You know, as a, you know, like we see in Genesis where it says, you know, we will make man in our own image. And we saw that some, another place in Isaiah. Possibly. We have to read more to figure it out. It's like we've got to figure it out by context. So, continue on. 53.1. Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He, that's the servant, grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressionable, impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised, and we didn't value him. Now, as we read that, we look at the we's and the ours. And it says there at the end, we didn't value him. Well, okay, God wouldn't do that. So it's not God who's speaking. So who could it be? It's somebody... It's people. It's somebody, you know, Isaiah is writing this. Um, trying to read the commentaries and see what they say. As I read this and I'm thinking of this, and I say this, we, I'm thinking, it's like, the, it's like all the prophets of the Old Testament are all speaking together at once, all agreeing together. We have heard this. The prophets of old, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, Elijah and Elisha, Micah, Jonah, Nahum, all those guys. They're all, Isaiah's writing as if they're all sitting together because they've all preached about these things. The prophets of the prophecy of the Messiah is all through the prophetic scriptures. And they're going, what we have heard, 
because they all heard it. There are prophecies from in Micah, in Hosea, Moses wrote prophecies in Deuteronomy, all through Scripture. David knew that the Messiah was coming. And so it's, if it's Isaiah sitting around with all the prophets of the Old Testament, the ones before him and the ones that came after him and the ones that were with him. And they're all writing. He says, well, we have heard this thing because they're the godly ones. Who has believed what we heard? So they think about it. They heard things from God and they told people and did people believe them? No. They were roundly rejected. All the prophets were. There were times that they were listened to, but most of the time they were ignored. And look at this prophet, verse 2. He grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. And we saw that earlier in Isaiah, where it talks about the Messiah growing from a stump. Where a stump would be cut down, and, it, and, and he grew out of that stump, a single branch. And so he uses that plant imagery again. But that's not impressive. A tree growing from a stump or just a single spring. That's not an impressive thing. And it continues, and it tells us that in the last part of verse 2. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him. No appearance that we should desire him. So even if you say back in 52.14, it says, well, that was he looked bad because he was beaten for his crucifixion, this is not talking about the crucifixion, it's just saying that he didn't look good to begin with. He didn't draw people to himself just by his appearance. So that fa those famous paintings that we have where Jesus looks perfect and he's a handsome dude, those are wrong. Jesus wasn't handsome. There was no reason people to follow him because he looked good. It was because what he did, the miracles that he did, the words that he proclaimed, that's why he was impressive. That's why he was exalted, as it says back there in 52.13. Why do I get passionate? Because I'm ugly. Nobody cares about what I look like. I have never been popular anywhere I've been. I'm never going to get picked to be the next pastor of Pleasant Valley Church because they look at me and they're like, no, I ain't picking him. I mean, look at the chin there, and he's got that little thingy here, and he's bald, and yeah. Yeah, that ain't happening. I'm not going to get a TV contract to preach either. Jesus wasn't desirable to look at. He was not impressive. It doesn't say how tall he was. It doesn't say if he was skinny or he was fat. But he, he wasn't good looking. He was a rough dude. In verse 3, 53, 3, he says, He was despised and rejected by men. A man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised, and we didn't value him. He knew what sickness was. How did he know what sickness was? Well, one, he grew up on this earth. He grew up during a time where medical, you know, medical knowledge was pretty limited. Was he sick? 
Did he get sick as a kid? Were there sickness in his family? We know in his family, when Jesus, you know, obviously, you know, Joseph was there when Jesus was born. We, we see when, when Jesus was 13 that Joseph was there beside Mary when they went to Jerusalem. But after that, Joseph is never mentioned again. And so we surmise that somewhere between the age of 13 and when Jesus started his ministry around age 30, that Joseph died. We surmise that. We don't know that. And what's even more to surmise is how did he die? We don't know that. We, did he have a heart attack and kill over quickly? Did he have a sickness, have cancer, or some other disease, and, and then he wasted away slowly? In Jesus' household, we don't know how he died. Did he have an injury that got infected and he died slowly and painfully? I don't know. We don't know what happened. But Jesus was aware of sickness. He knew what it was like. He saw it all around him, whether it was in his house or just in the, in the city he lived in. Did it hit him personally? Did he get sick? We usually think, well, Jesus was strong and nothing bad ever happened to him until the crucifixion. We don't know that. He, it says he knew about sickness and suffering. But we also know people despised him. He just... They despised him because of his message. They despised him because of his goodness. You imagine being Jesus' brothers and sisters. It's like, well, why can't you be more like Jesus? He's perfect. He never does anything wrong. Right? You know, you know the goody two-shoes. Well, he was. Because he didn't do things wrong. He didn't bully people. He didn't say nasty stuff to other people. He was sinless. He lived every day of his life, even as a toddler, of you know, the fruit of the Spirit. Does it mean he never cried? No. Does it mean he didn't poop his pants? Yeah, he probably did that. Okay. He probably fell down and got hurt. But he didn't, cuss, he didn't say cuss words when he did. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. And we think that our suffering is so bad that God can't understand it, we can't pray to him about it. It says that God's servant knew what this was. When Jesus said, come to me who are heavy laden, because he knew what being heavy laden was about. You don't have any problem that God doesn't understand that Jesus didn't understand because he lived this world. And so what happens with it? So he's turned away. He's despised. And we get to verse 4, and verse 4 starts with yet. And sometimes the little words in scriptures, yet, and, but, are the biggest words that we need to pay attention to. Yet. He was despised. People rejected him. Yet. Yet what? Yet, so Isaiah 53, verse 4, 4 through 6 says this, Yet he himself bore our sickness, and he carried our pains, but we turned, regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted, but he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities, punished 
for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We have all turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. So here's the, the, the still the plural, first-person plural thing going on. And we see this is not God speaking. This is obvious because it says are. So once again, it sound, to me it sounds like, okay, this is the prophets, all the prophets speaking in prophetically. And, and they're saying we, 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 our iniquities, the sins of the prophets, because we were hit failures too. He bore himself our sickness. Jesus took our sickness. He carried our pains. And we in turn regarded him stricken. He took our pains, but yet we said, well, he's, he's the one that's, you know, there's something wrong with him. Look at the Jews of the days of Jesus. When you read the Gospels and how the Jews reacted to Jesus, especially the Pharisees, it's like, you, you can't be the prophet. One, you're from the wrong place, right? You know, you, you didn't come from Jerusalem. You're, you're from a poor family. You can't be, have a kingly descent. How, how can that be? You have no military proudness. How can you be anybody? You keep hanging around with poor people and fishermen and tax collectors. And you go around and touch lepers. How can you be anybody that anybody important? So we, they considered him stricken. But he bore our sicknesses. He bore our carried our pains. In verse 5, but he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities, punished for our peace was on him. And so verse 5, it tells about all the things that happened to Jesus. And it sounds like a crucifixion, like an execution. He was pierced. There was a sword that went to his side. They pierced his hands and his feet when they nailed him to the cross. Crushed. No, he didn't get ran over by a, a steamroller that we use on the roads. No, he, he was crushed, just the death that he had. He was crushed because he couldn't breathe anymore, being hung on the cross. He was just crushed. And when he saw him praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's saying, God, take this cup from me, but nevertheless, your will be done. And he was, he was praying so hard. He was, he was sweating blood. And he was, but he was pierced. Why? For our rebellion. The prophets' rebellions of their time, the people's rebellion of their time, but you're in my rebellion against God because we refuse to follow God sometimes, all the time. Because of our iniquities, our sins, he was punished for our peace was on him. He was punished for our, so we could have peace. And because he was pierced, because he was crushed, because he was punished, we are healed by his wounds. I don't know any doctor who, who treats anybody that way. I'm going I'm to create wounds in this person over here so you, you can be healed. 
I mean, you might think of a, you know, somebody donating a kidney or a lung or something. But for the most part, we don't do anything like that. That does not make any medical sense. But here we are. He was wounded. And then it goes on. It, it describes us even worse. Verse 6. We went astray like sheep. We have turned to our own way. And the Lord punished him for the iniquity of us all. So I am the one that went astray like a sheep. That's why sheep have to have shepherds, because they'll scatter themselves. They won't stay together. Cattle will automatically pretty much stay together. Horses will stay together. They're herd animals. Sheep don't know to stay together. They, they put their head down, and they just go off, and they, they get lost so easily. So the sheep, they go astray. They don't pay attention to anybody. They go off and do their own thing. We have each turned our own way. And the Lord Yahweh, that's cap, Lord is all caps, Yahweh, has punished him, his servant, for the iniquity of us all. So I didn't get punished. Jesus got punished. The Messiah got punished for my sin. You know, most criminals, they don't have a problem if somebody else gets arrested for their crime. He's like, well, it wasn't me. Sucks for you, right? Jesus is being punished for me, for my sin. And that's what the prophets are saying. It says, we, we have all went astray. So even as if Isaiah and the prophets, they've went astray. They understand their sin. How much more is ours? It continues to describe the servant in verses 7 through 9. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep silent before his shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment. And who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, but he was, was with a rich man at his death because he had done no violence and he had not spoken deceitfully. So now it went away and there's no we's and ours in here. It's just describing a narrator describing the servant. He, the servant, was oppressed and afflicted. Well, he was arrested. The Pharisees slapped him. The Roman soldiers made fun of him. The people spit on him as he walked down the road on the way to his crucifixion. But as we read in Scripture, he didn't open his mouth. He didn't say anything. He didn't curse anybody. He didn't spit back. He didn't say, how dare you? Even Pontius Pilate, when he was interrogating him, and questioned him, and he said, why don't you answer me? Same with the Pharisees. When the Sanhedrin was questioning him, he didn't answer except once.
Like a sheep led to the slaughter. I like to watch veterinarian shows on, on National Geographic Wild. And the sheep, when they, when they deal with sheep, you know, they're pretty easy to catch. And, and once you, like, pick them up and you, like, hold them upside down, they just lay there. They don't do anything. They don't make any noise. They quit thrashing around. And they can do whatever procedure they need to do, whether it's shear them or castrate them, whatever they're you know, doing, or, or check on an injury. They just lay there. The pigs, however, as soon as you touch them, one, they're hard to catch because they keep running around. But as soon as you pick one of them suckers up, they start squealing, screaming at a high-pitched voice. And it's just they're just screaming bloody, even if you're not doing anything to them, you're just holding them and restraining them. They're just screaming. So Jesus didn't do that. He wasn't screaming bloody murder. He wasn't screaming, making everybody else miserable from his being so loud. He was like the sheep. He was just quiet and just laid there. Did not open his mouth. He was taken away, in verse 8, because of oppression and judgment. Who considered his fate? Who cared what happened to him? The implication is nobody. Nobody cared. And we see that when Jesus was crucified. His disciples scattered and ran. In the book of John, it says that Mary was there and... um, and one disciple was there. That was it. The others all ran away. Judas executed himself because of guilt, because of his betrayal. Peter went away and wept because he denied who Jesus, that he even knew who Jesus was. And so, who can say? No one. All the people that cheered for him on what we call Palm Sunday, we're all cheering for his death. Or they went away. And did he really die? Well, the second half of verse 8 makes... If, you're not, if, if, if verse 5 isn't good enough for you, verse 8 ought to be. For he was cut off from the land of the living. There you go. He was cut off from the... Where, well, that means he died. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. It sounds like God speaking there, my people's rebellion. But it could also be the prophets. You know, that you know, they're part of their people too. And they rebelled against God and against God's word. Jesus preached the word of God and he was rejected. When, why do we think life will be any different for us? When we share the love of God and his, the need for repentance, people are going to reject us too. But they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting God. And they're rejecting you because you're speaking the words of God. He died. In verse 9 it says he was assigned a grave. Well, that's what happens when you die. You go to the grave. But he was assigned a grave with the wicked. Well, who's that? Well, in the Roman times, after an execution like this, they didn't take him to the graveyard and give him a nice grave. 
Even their families didn't want them because they were criminals. They disgraced the family. So the Romans just had a big hole in the ground, and they just threw the bodies of the criminals that were executed into that hole. That was the grave of the wicked. And they weren't actually buried because they didn't get covered up. It was laid there, so you didn't want to go anywhere near that because it stunk. And nobody cared because that was the wicked. They didn't, they didn't deserve anything. And so that was the assignment that Jesus got was to go to that wicked grave with all the other criminals and the two other thieves on the cross that were on the cross with Jesus. That's where their bodies went. Just that open pit where they threw the criminals in. That was the grave of the wicked. It says, but he was with a rich man at his death. And we know from Scripture that Joseph of Arimathea took Jesus' body and put him in his own tomb. Joseph apparently was a rich man. Not Joseph, the father, or the husband of Mary, a different Joseph. And so, well, the rich are usually associated with the wicked, and, and some people think that, well, the rich and the wicked are always go together. But in this case, the rich was separate from the wicked, at least from my understanding. Why? Because it says in the last verse, verse 9, because he had done no violence, he had not spoken deceitfully. And if Jesus had got up from the grave and he was in that big open pit grave, who would have missed him? Who would have known that there was one less body in that pit? But God knew that he had put him someplace that he would be missed. And so through Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man. I mean, that is so unusual. How could God predict that Jesus would die a criminal death but yet not be buried with the criminals? That's not normal. You can't plan that one. Unless you're God. So this scripture was written and did the people of the day, when, when Isaiah wrote this down, did they understand all the implications that was here? No. They probably had arguments and saying, okay, what does this mean? Is this all about the Messiah? Can this, can this really be about the Messiah, that he's ugly? And that he's, he's been executed because of the people's rebellion? That doesn't make any sense because we read in other places in Scripture where the Messiah is conquering and, 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 and ruler of the world. We means here in 52.13, it says that the servant will be successful, will be raised up and lifted up and exalted. They didn't think that raised up meant being put on a cross for execution. And so when they had prophetic things and talked about the end times, they argued about this scripture. That's why I don't get too worried about end times. Because the Jews of the day didn't see this all as happening to the Messiah. How much do we see? And we go, well, that can't be the future. That can't be the way it is. That, that can't be futuristic. So we ignore it. But yet after it happens, we can go back and go, oh, God said it right there. We just didn't understand it. And so we continue on, verses 10 through 12. Yet the Lord, there's that yet again. 
Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make him a guilt offering, he, it says that the Lord, so it's kind of like third person, it says when you make him a guilt offering, so God made him a guilt offering. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely when you make him a guilt offering. He will see his seed and he will prolong his days, and by his hands the Lord's pleasures will be accomplished. What? The Lord is pleased to crush him? The Lord's pleasure will be accomplished by this gruesome death? How can God's will be done by all this awfulness? How can God's will be done in your life by all the awfulness that's happening to you? Maybe there's a plan. Maybe it's more than just about what's happening in the last five minutes. Verse 11. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servants will justify many, and he will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion. He will receive the mighty as spoil, because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels. And yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. So we sum up, yet. So we just read about all this awfulness. Who's going to consider the fate of God's servant? No one. You know, He's cut off from the land. He's, he's dying a death of the wicked. Yet the Lord was pleased. Why? Because we go back and we read in verse 5 that his death was for our healing us. So God was pleased that we are being healed. God was pleased that our sins were being taken away. It says, after his anguish, in verse 11, he will see a light and be satisfied. We know Jesus rose from the dead. We know, as we read Scripture, that through the Holy Spirit, God, God's word is spread throughout the world. And that salvation is going across this world to every ethnic group, every nation, every language. And because of that, it says there in verse 11, by his knowledge, by God's knowledge, by the servant's knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will carry, he will carry their iniquities. He will carry your iniquities for you. You don't have to carry them anymore. It's like you had a big, heavy backpack and somebody else took it off you and they're carrying it for you so you don't have to carry it anymore. Because that pleases God. Your, the forgiveness of your sins through your repentance, through the, what God has done, what Jesus did on the cross as as the guilt offering there in verse 10. The guilt offering, the sin offering. You read about that in the book of Leviticus. You read the book of Leviticus, you find all about all the offerings. What they mean, how to do them. Jesus became the guilt offering. The Jews had to, as part of their worship, sacrifice animals every year 
as part of their sin offering, their guilt offering. And sometimes more often if you did something egregious. Always, you had to do this over and over again. Every person had to do this. A father couldn't do it for his grown son. His son had to do his own sacrifice. And you had to do it every year. They had a sacrifice every year, the Day of Atonement, where the high priest, after he sacrificed an animal for his own personal sin, he, excuse me, he would have to do a sacrifice for the whole nation. And that was the only day he was allowed into the Holy of Holies of the temple to sprinkle the blood from that sacrifice for the atonement of the sins of the nation. But they had to do it every year, so is it really atoning for it? It's like not cleaning the wall, it's just painting over the dirty spots. It doesn't really, it doesn't really fix anything. And then verse 12, Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion. He will receive the mightiest spoil because he willingly submitted to death. He was counted among the rebels. Crucifixion was how Romans killed rebels. Yet he bore the sins of many and interceded for the rebels. He was counted among the rebels, but he, he's not talking about Roman rebels. He's talking about the rebels against God. We see that in multiple places where he talked about we rebelled against God. We, and so here's God taking care of our sin for us. And here's the suffering servant, Isaiah, roughly 800 B.C.-ish, give or take, writing this down and saying, here's what God's going to do for you all. And here we are reading it. Thousands of years later, there's a scripture that Paul would have preached to talk about who Jesus was and the disciples when they went around because they didn't have the New Testament yet. Peter couldn't use refer to Galatians because Galatians hadn't been wrote, written yet. John couldn't refer to the book of Romans because Romans hadn't been written yet. They used this scripture and other scriptures like it to point to who Jesus was and what he did. Humble yourself today. You're the one that Jesus died for that's told about this here. So if you've never gave your life to Christ, this is the reason why. Because he's the one that can take away your sins. This is why you need to repent and be baptized. And if you've repented and be baptized, this is why you can turn every care of you have to God. All the miserableness that you're feeling right now. The loneliness from being segregated from others. The depression you have because you can't see the people and do the things that you want to do. The pain that you have because of the hurtful words that other people have done or the hurtful actions others have done against you. You can take it all to God because he's already dealt with it. You can give every emotion that you have to God. The anger, the sadness, the depression, the frustrations, the agonies. Tell God about it because he can take care of it because he already has. 
Just look at the emotion that's in this scripture. And so we see in verse 52, 13, see my servant will be successful and I will raise him up. When we get to, at the end of chapter 13, 53, it says, therefore I will give him many as a portion. We see what the successfulness looks like. We see that sins are forgiven. That's the success. We think success is numbers. In, in, in great buildings and, and, and lots of money. But in God, the success is people coming to Christ, people worshiping him for his salvation. And so that's what you and I need to do. Lord God, we just thank you and praise you for all this. You are the mighty God. Help us to be your servants. Help us to turn to you for forgiveness, for salvation for comfort, for strength, because today is just too hard to deal with. You are the mighty God, Lord. We just pray all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. So I thank you for watching and listening. Uh, I see Linda there and uh, Doug and Cindy. I thank you for watching. I thank you for listening. Once again, I'm, I'm Pastor Nelson Nisley, Associate Pastor at Tower View Baptist Church in Kansas City, Missouri. Check out our website at towerviewkc.com. If you, if you have questions, you're, you can go to the website, and there's, there's a way you can send us uh, the pastor's uh, messages there. Um, you can call or text the church at 816-368-1330. Um, you can come and talk to us in person. You can set up an appointment and come talk to us. Um, you can come worship service today at 10.30. You can sit in the car and listen to the radio at 90.7. Uh, our intern today, uh, Lane, is is um, preaching. He'll be preaching outside from the back of the pickup truck. Um, you can sit outside if you want to. It's going to be cold and um, windy, but you can sit outside if you want to. I'll set up one of the speakers. And so you know, turn to God. Turn to us. If you have a question, if you have a comment, if you need help, let us know. And if if this is helpful to you, you know, click, you know, like the video, you know, share it with others so that others can see and hear. If you think that will be helpful, um, if you do, even if you just click like, that tells Facebook that people like this and are watching it, and more people will see it. And it'll pop up on their feeds. So, you know, do those things. Help, help us spread the word. You spread the word by taking this knowledge you have and telling others. So God is a mighty God. I pray that he will constantly remind us. I pray that you won't forget. I pray that you can share that with others. So have a great day. God bless. Thank you.